My name is Brent Stenberg, and in terms of my vocation, I serve as the executive director of the Christian Psychological Center, which is on the far end of the campus, our new building over this last year. And I have absolutely the best office in the place uh, because my office overlooks that PDS football field. And I'm actually, I'm kind of putting together some brats and some cold ones for some of those games, so kind of turned into a skybox. So let me know if you're, if you're interested. We could, we could maybe work something out. You know, for those of you who are in the medical field or those of you who have gone to see your physician lately, you know that there's this thing called HIPAA, which are certain requirements about how physicians are to run their business and about how patients are to be cared for. And as a psychologist, there's certain of those HIPAA regulations that apply to me as well. And one of them is called informed consent. And so I, I need to start out this talk with a disclaimer in terms of kind of what I know and what I don't know. So I'd, I'd like to start with that. Um, in, in growing up in the faith, I used to have uh, leaders who would suggest that one of the great things to study would be the book of Proverbs. And if you look at the book of Proverbs, there's 31 chapters, right? And so as a result, the thought was, is every day, if you read a passage of a chapter in Proverbs, that by the end of the month, you'll have gone through the whole thing. Well, I'm here to say that I'm an expert on chapters one through about six or seven of Proverbs. <laughs> and I looked at the syllabus, and, and Sandy's already, by mid-October, gotten to chapter nine. So I'm kind of out here in uncharted waters. I just want you to know that. I, I just feel better saying that, that now I've made my disclaimer. Although it is ironic, because the topic is on self-control, and I wonder what that says about, about self-control, but never mind, kind of do as I, I say, maybe not as I do. But the other thing that's really better news, I suppose, than the fact that we're in uncharted waters is that in my work as a psychologist, that um, I really do know some things about being able to help people that have self-control problems. And in fact, there was a couple weeks ago, a fellow that came to see me, young man, very wealthy, and very well connected in our community, but very, very worried. And what he was worried about is he said, you know what, he said, I don't know, I've never told anybody this, but he said, one of the problems that I have is he said, I really get thrills out of stealing stuff. He said, I have the money to pay for it, but he said, and he said, the problem is, is the things I love to steal are always high-ticket items. So I'm like, man, that, that sounds like a real problem. I said, but I can help you. And I laid out for him what would be a good treatment plan. And he heard it, and he said, well, yeah, he says, maybe. He says, I, I hope that'll do the trick. But he says, if it doesn't work, he said, what am I going to do? And I said, well, I thought for a minute, and I said, you know, if it doesn't work, um, I really could use a new video camera. <laughs> <laughs> So on that HIPAA stuff, it's called a dual relationship. You know, I have some real mixed feelings about whether he gets better or not. <laughs> well, the topic for today is the topic of self-control. And I want to talk about this subject from really two different directions. And in this lesson, what I want us to focus on is really what we'll call the paradoxical nature of self-control. First of all, what we'll look at is, is what we'll call the illusion of self-control, the illusion of self-control. And then we'll take a look at the importance of self-control. And to start this out, if you'll take a look at your handout, there is, I'd like you to fill this out with me when it comes to, 
when you think about the things that are important in your life, there's really a question about ultimately how much control do we have over the things that happen. Now, now the answer is, is, that, is that we do have some control over what happens in our life. It's certainly true. God's given us the ability to make choices and to plan and to execute those plans. And in many ways, the books of Proverbs or the wisdom literature is really a literature about probabilities, not necessarily about full-on promises. It's about things that can happen and that increases the percentage of them happening, as well as underneath core issues about character and about the kind of people that we are as we live out our lives in this world. So if you just take your pen and, and, and just give these percentages, first of all, what's the percentage that you assume that you'll arrive safely at your destination this morning after leaving, amen? What's the percentage that you'll get from here to there safely? Okay, what's the percentage in which your health, that you have control over your health? Okay, what's the percentage that you think you've got control over your wellness? How about your control over your wealth? That may be tied to how much you earn, or it may be tied to how you manage your savings, or how you prepare for retirement. How much control ultimately do you have over what that number looks like and whether it grows or declines? For, for those of us who are still in the working world, what, what's the control that you have over career advancement as to whether or not you may get that promotion or if you're interested in changing in the work that you do that you'd be able to find a better job? What's, what's the percentage that that, that really is, is under your control? How about for those of us who are married, that, that you're going to have a deeply satisfying marriage and that, that will continue uh, to the end? What, what percentage of control do you have over whether or not that mar your marriage turns out well? Or for those of you who are single, maybe the question would be, and you, and you want to be married, what's the percentage of control you have over finding the right person and about moving from dating to marriage? Or for those of us that have kids, what's the percentage of, of reality that your kids are going to turn out all right? What, what control do you have over that? What difference can you make in that outcome? Or how about in terms of your reputation, how other people think about you? What amount of control do you have over that? Okay. Or that your future will turn out just as you hope it will. All of us make our plans. All of us say, these are things important to me. This is what I hope will happen. You know, how much control do we have that indeed that will take place? And then finally, you may think about in your own life some other things that are very important to you, some things that may be on your mind currently or some things you've thought about in the past. And so you can carry this kind of survey on to ask the question, how much control do I have over those things? Now my hunch is, is we took time to talk around the tables, which we're not going to this morning. There's something else later that I'm going to want you to talk with each other about. But I think if we looked at it, I doubt that there's anyone here that would say that in any of these categories, you have 100% locked tight that you can control the outcome of what that is. And so as a result, even though in our lives we have this longing to know that A plus B is going to equal C, to know that what we do makes a difference, still there's this element in the middle where in our lives there is a gap between our effort and the outcome. There's a gap between what we can do and what we hope for and how things will actually turn out.
And see, here's the key of this illusion of control, that it's in this gap between our effort and the outcome that fear or frustration or faith reside, okay? We broker on equilibrium. We love it when things are predictable. Or if we're gonna shake things up, we like to be the one who shakes them up. We don't like them shaken up around us and it having an impact on us. But again, in our lives, there are these times that we face situations that what we hoped for is different than what happens. And there's these situations in which we end up seeing that our best effort isn't gonna result in the outcome that we hoped for. And so that notion about fear, we ask questions like, what will happen? Or we ask, how will this turn out? Or we ask, will I have enough? Or we ask, will my daughter be okay? Or we ask, will my marriage make it? Or we ask whether my future is secure? And a variety of other questions because we have that anxiousness, that uncertainty. Sometimes what our response to that effort and outcome gap is a sense of frustration. You know, despite my best efforts, it didn't work out. Or I, I, I didn't get that sale, despite all the work we did and a good presentation made. Or, or she turned me down. I thought she'd say yes, and she didn't. Or, or he, he said he can't pay back that loan that we gave to him. He said he can't make good on it. Or we didn't get invited to that Christmas party down the block. Wonder what happened there, see. Of course, the, the ultimate question a lot of that is, you know, why do slow drivers drive in the left lane? But that's, a, that, that's another area of frustration. And then there's also issues for us who are people of faith about, about, about how is God in the midst of these circumstances that we face? We, we ask questions like, how is God at work? And, and can I really trust him that my future is secure? And can I really believe and hold on to the fact that somehow there's more going on than maybe I can see that's around me? It's interesting because if you look at the Gospels, a story that is recorded with a great deal of verses is a story of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see in that story that Judas has betrayed him, and we see that he takes the 11 to the garden, we see that he takes his three best friends, and we see that he prays alone. And we see recorded in the Gospels the feelings of both fear and frustration and faith that our Lord felt in those circumstances. He prays to his own father about the fact of, please take this cup from me. And it's very clear that as a human being, fully God, fully man, that there's a tremendous amount of pain for him, a, a tremendous amount of anxiousness, a, per, a, 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 a definite amount of fear, and yet a willingness to move forward with what it is that God called him to, to do. There's an astronaut, Gus Grissom, who was one of the early astronauts, and they asked him, prior to, as he was training for his launch, they said, um, will you be afraid? Are you afraid? Are you anxious? And he said, you know, he said, I know that I will be afraid, and I let it go at that. So in other words, that feeling of fear did not keep him, that feeling of fear did not keep our Savior from moving forward with their calling. And then that frustration, you know, Christ comes back twice to his disciples, who are not there for a spiritual lesson. He, they are there because they are his three best friends and they're there for social support, and they fall asleep. And if you look at the Luke account, it's really kind of funny because he says the second time he comes back, he says, couldn't you guys just stay awake a little while? And the passage says, 
and they did not know what to say. They kind of shuffled their feet, they kind of looked at the ground, and it's frustration about the fact that, are you with me? Can you stand by me? But then again, we see that tremendous faith. But for all of us, there's a sense of involvement in community, there's people who care about us, but we all walk a particular road. You know, the question then becomes, how in the world do we handle this gap? Because again, we hate the reality that we are not ultimately in control. And so I wanna talk for a minute about how that gap is handled by the world and how that gap is handled by faith. How does the world deal or not deal with this reality of the illusion of control? And, and, and here's what I say about that. Through the, the, the way that the world handles this reality is through the illusion that we are the master of our own destiny and that by our own efforts, we can create a prosperous present and a secure and predictable future, okay? So the way we deal with that is by, by saying to ourselves, we, we really are the master of our own destiny. We can control our future. And then we hope that by our efforts, that we can create this prosperous presence and that we can create this secure future. You know, I'm tempted to look at some of the things that are popular and to kind of be scornful of them, but, but I wanna talk about them in maybe a little bit different way. Because if you take a look at what sits on the bestseller list on New York Times in terms of the nonfiction or in terms of the advice books, there have been through the years multiple books written multiple videos shown that tell us if you do these things, you will have a prosperous present and you'll have this secure future that you are the master of your destiny. One that's been very popular recently is this notion called the secret. And it was developed by this, this woman who had discovered this book that was over 100 years old. And in reading that book, she discovered the secret which then in the video talks about how through the years that secret has been hidden away, that people that have done well have tried to keep the rest of us that are just the masses from knowing the secret because they didn't want us to live happy and fulfilled lives. Now the book that, and, and it also says that in, in the bio on the woman who developed it, how she not only discovered this 100 year old, this ancient book, okay, in America that's ancient, but also that since then she's read hundreds of books and hundreds of pages in developing and getting back to this, this notion of the secret. And in fact, she said that the secret has been identified by people throughout the ages, by Buddha, by Aristotle, by Plato, by Newton, by Martin Luther King Jr., by Carl Jung, by Victor Hugo, by Henry Ford, by Ralph Waldo Emerson, by Thomas Edison, by Albert Einstein, and on and on and on. Christ didn't make the list, so he missed it, I guess, from her point of view. <laughs> But here's all these other people that have known the secret, okay? But the book that she read 100, that's 100 years old was a book by Wallace Waddles entitled The Science of Getting Rich, okay? And so there's been through the years all of these different books written about prosperity and about future, okay? And so she discovered this one about the science of getting rich and that changed her life. It's interesting when you look at people that are writing these books, typically there's three elements. Life was bad, they found the secret, life is now good, okay? And the reason this stuff sells so much and why people will park their brain at the door is because we long for that too. It's bad, we want it to be good, we want the future to be secure. Well, the law of 
attraction is what's at the core of the secret. And there's truth with a small t to some of what gets said. But for her, what the truth is, capital T, is that by your attitude and by your, your, your stance through the universe, you can bring about in your life, the universe will line up to bring you what it is that you hope for. And so the three elements of the secret of the law of attraction is to ask, to believe, and to receive, okay? So again, the thought is, is that by your own efforts, by your own attitudes, by lining up with the universe, it will happen. True story, I, I, I was on a Friday talking with a woman in my office who was telling me about the secret and about how in her life she felt like this would make a difference. And I, I didn't want to be disrespectful to her, but on Wednesday evening, the Wednesday before that Friday, Chris Carey, who's one of my colleagues, had given a talk here at Second, had done good work that day, had given a talk here at Second on depression, and was driving home, he lives out east, and as he was driving through Shelby Farms, a deer ran out and a car hit it, and the deer came through Chris's windshield, okay? So I asked this woman, I said, what is it that Chris Carey did to align the universe so that this deer came through his windshield? I said, I, I'm not sure that's exactly what he was hoping for that would happen in his life, okay? So she thought, well, maybe it doesn't work every time. But the reality is, is that, is that we long for that to work. Back in 1995, there was a series of books written called Conversations with God. Do you remember those? An Uncommon Dialogue. And it was a guy who, again, down on his luck, wrote this list of, of angry, this angry letter to God, asking God to account for all these different things. And then what he said is, is you know, God showed up. because All of a sudden, he heard this voice that said, uh, do you just want to complain, or do you want answers to your questions? He's like, oh, well, I want answers to my questions. And he wrote nine books that are these conversations with God, where he asks these questions, which are the questions we would ask. And then he writes what God told him. Well, in an interview with Larry King and others, he said, well, maybe it was my imagination, but he said, I don't think so. I think God was telling me to write these things. And that first book, Conversations with God, which is this guy saying, this is how God answers these questions, was on the New York Times bestseller list for over 135 weeks, okay? And again, why is that? Because we long to hear from God, and we long to know that somehow it's all going to work out fine, okay? For those of you who know the name Ellie uh, Wiesel, he wrote a book called Night, and he wrote a book called Dawn, and he wrote a book called uh, uh, Morning. And what he talks about is about his experiences as a young man with the Holocaust. And he was uh, 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 about 15, 16 years old, and he was in uh, Hungary. And he, in the book Night, in a very sparse way, just tells about the experiences as their village was taken for destruction. And he talks about this one man who was in their village that had been, the, the, the Nazis started to say, if, you did, if you're a Jew and you don't have proper papers, then you're gonna be taken away. And this one man who lived in the village but moved away was taken away, but he escaped. And he came back to the village to tell them what was happening with the Nazis and what was happening with Jews. And, and Wiesel says that there was no longer any joy in his eyes and that this man who came back to tell him about this no longer sang. He no longer talked to me about God 
and he never, he, but only what he had seen. And it says that people refused not only to believe his stories about what was taking place, but they believed to even listen to him. And so it's, it was, it says that over the next 18 months that the, res, the restrictions on the Jews continued to increase. No valuables were to be kept in Jewish homes. They were not allowed to visit restaurants or attend the synagogue or leave home after six in the evening. And they had to wear this yellow star at all times. And Ellie's father said, the yellow star? Oh, well, what of that? You don't die of it. And then an order was received from the SS that all the Jews in this town were to be uh, transferred to one of two ghettos, which were jointly run in a small town. And so now they were in this compound. But here's how the people thought about that compound. They said, the barbed wire which fenced us in did not cause us any real fear, even though uh, even, we even thought ourselves rather well off. We were entirely self-contained, a little Jewish republic. We appointed a Jewish council, a Jewish police, an office for social assistance, a labor committee, a hygiene department, a whole government machinery. Everyone marveled at it. We should no longer have before our eyes those hostile faces, those hate-ridden stares. Our fear and anguish were at an end. We were living among Jews, among brothers. And then he says, it was neither German nor Jew who ruled the ghetto. It was an illusion. And see, within a few weeks then, it all, literally all hell broke loose. And in the reality of what was taking place, it was so outside of what those Jewish folks in that village could comprehend or wanted to even consider that it was much more desirable to believe in illusion. And we see that, for example, in what N.T. Wright in a book called Surprised by Hope, where he talks about the resurrection and what life ahead looks like, where he says, you know, we cannot look in our world and say that it's getting better. And yet again, we want it to be. We want that illusion of self-control. We want to know that what we do makes a difference. And yet the Bible is unblinking and saying it's just not true, that ultimately the most important things are out of our control. So what do we know about this from God's point of view? Well, in Proverbs it says that in his heart, a man, is, that in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And it says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end leads to death. There's something bigger going on than what we can see and touch and feel. And it's important to recognize that the most important things from a faith point of view are somehow out of our control and out of our awareness in some ways. But we look to our peer group to see how we're doing. We look to our bank account to see how we're doing. We look to see, you know, how do I fit in with things around me? And so we look to feel kind of good about our equilibrium without recognizing that maybe in some ways how we're constructing our life is not going to get us where it is that we ultimately want to go. And you know what will happen after Christmas in talking about Ecclesiastes, what we know from that book is that in the end, our striving is in vain. The author of Ecclesiastes has this capability to seek wisdom and finds that truth is too painful. He has the ability to seek pleasure, and he finds that it gets boring after a while. He has the opportunity to do good work, major projects. He has the ability to earn a great deal of money. And he realizes, you know, the great equalizer is what? It's death. After, who's going to remember you? After, everything you worked for, a bunch of fools are going to split it up, see? And so basically what Ecclesiastes is saying isn't that there's not meaning in finding knowledge or in our work or in enjoyable things. But he's saying that if our whole goal is to strive in the achievement of that, 
in the end it is not going to satisfy. And so if that's the case, it is so hard for us so often to let go of this belief that we can close this gap between our effort and the outcome. You know, I have an opportunity to speak each year at the Second Presbyterian Church staff retreat. And this year the topic was on joy. And because I'm a psychologist, I always get the downside of the topic. So like the, my part was, what are the joy killers? I, I hate that. I always get that, that side of things. But I sent out a survey, and I asked them four questions. What brings you joy? What robs you of joy? How do you restore joy? And then the fourth question was, are there things in your life that you wrestle with that sometimes make joy difficult to experience? And it was really fascinating what the responses were. And here's what the top three were. And tell me if this is not all of our experience in this human condition. One was this difficulty in relinquishing control, that that robs joy. I want my plans to succeed. I wonder if God is really, can I really trust him with my future? And for all of us, we had that difficulty in relinquishing control. Another that they said was concern about what other people think, that notion of people pleasing. How am I coming across? How am I received? How does that work out? And that can rob us of joy when our identity is tied to that reputation, not just to our character. And then the third that many of them put, they're wondering if who I am is enough. In other words, in doing this work of representing Christ in this church, I know my own heart. I know how far I fall short. Am I the person to be doing this? And I think that's probably for all of us on some level, some combination of that. Is my future secure? Can I relinquish control? Can I trust God? How do other people see me? And am I enough? We live in our lives with so much noise. And the source of this is both around us and inside us. It's estimated that we're exposed to as many as 3,000 messages every day that tell us what is important, what we should be like, what we're supposed to do that'll make us happy, how we should live our lives. And on the inside, we worry about our success, about our relationships, about our reputations, about our future. And sometimes, in the midst of all of this, we can lose our way in terms of our connectedness with God. It's not that we lose our faith. We still understand faith. We still understand how to articulate cognitively what we believe. But sometimes, in the midst of all this noise, without and within, we lose touch with the person who loves us most, and we sometimes lose our bearings in the midst of that. What I want to show you for the next few minutes is a video by Rob Bell entitled Noise, and I want you to experience this, and then I want us to take just a few minutes to maybe talk around the tables about what you see and what you experience that you might want to share with others. I wish in some ways that we had time to talk more about this. And maybe there's some conversation begun with a friend that you may want to um, continue, maybe later today or, or at another time. Um, I, I included in the handout the questions that were asked, if you'd like to go back sometime and, and look through that. And then also at the bottom of the handout, this invitation about spending time with God made a suggestion about maybe three ways to do that if, if, if it's not something that you're used to doing or or interested in kind of some format or ways that you might do it. So that's there for your invitation to, 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 to do that. And, and that's some ideas about how maybe, maybe to go about formulating that, that quiet time. 
I'd like to turn my attention to uh, the other side of self-control, which is the importance of self-control. And so far in Amen this fall, the focus has been on the various ways in which wisdom found in Proverbs addresses various important aspects of our lives, talking about the invitation of wisdom to live a life that's meaningful. And Sandy's talked about the areas of of, of sexual relationships, of, of our work, of our families, of our speech. Chris talked about our finances. Rocky talked about families. But in, in, in a lot of ways, if you read the beginning, and I won't read through this by just virtue of time, but the, the early in that first chapter, it talks about wisdom crying out and about the invitation of wisdom to be able to, to, to incorporate that in our lives. And so when I think about the, the importance of self-control, what I think about is that self-control really is this willingness to look at how do I apply wisdom and the invitation that wisdom makes to our lives. So by self-control, what we're talking about is, is taking what we know and making it real. And so what do we mean by healthy self-control? Well, here's just a real clean, neat, scrubbed definition. That, that self-control is a willingness to pattern our behavior according to clear-cut principles in order to effectively live out God's purpose for our lives. A willingness to pattern our behaviors according to clear-cut principles in order to effectively live out God's purpose for our lives. The problem is, is that it's never that neat and clean. And we know, for example, from just purely a genetic point of view, that, for example, some of us are wired much more impulsively, tension deficit disorder. Some of us are much higher at kind of risk-taking. Some of us much more impulsive in how we think about things and what we do than others. And some of that is just flat, hard wiring. And for people that are wired to that direction, this notion of self-control or about slowing down to really set purpose and direction is far more difficult for those that may not struggle with some of those things. Or for some of us struggling with anxiety or struggling with depression, struggling with things that we experience in terms of mood disorders can significantly impact because in the midst of depression, it's so difficult to take the initiative to do the things we know that we ought to do. And so sometimes, again, these problems that we have maybe with self-control have nothing to do with motivation or spirituality, but have to do with our humanity. On the other hand, our life experiences have a significant impact in terms of how we live our lives. Just a, a silly example, when I was in college, I sat in a, one of those classrooms with big oak tables conversing with a friend after class, and outside there was in Fort Worth, Texas, those big storms can move in, and unbeknownst to us, this storm moved in, and this huge flash of lightning, this huge clap of thunder, and the next thing I knew, my friend was crawling out from underneath the big oak table with a sheepish grin on his face. Steve, what happened? Well, I learned something I hadn't known before. He'd been in Vietnam before coming to college, and flashes and booms were incoming mortar, and you got under the heaviest thing in the room where you were. And so see, our experiences that have been painful, our experiences have been difficult, abusive patterns, things that have happened, those get encoded in a way that our default position is safety and security. And so sometimes in our lives, those painful events make it difficult to not just overreact, and it's beyond the scope of this talk, but how do we begin then 
to make peace with some of those things that have happened. And frankly, it's not enough to just say, well, trust God and believe, because a lot of times that falls back into some of that secret stuff, name it, claim it. And while we can believe, sometimes that deep question is, Lord, help me in my unbelief. And sometimes we need the opportunity for people walking with us or for treatment or for something that can help us to deal with making peace with some of the things that get in the way of us fully living this life that we're called to live. But patterning our behavior around clear-cut principles in order to live out the purpose of our lives. Now, one of the qualities that distinguishes us as human beings from the rest of creation is this fundamental desire to seek meaning and purpose in our lives. And our lifestyle, okay, how you choose to live, that reveals what you see as being meaningful and important to you, okay? In the midst of all these joys and sorrows, this, this, this complexity of this life, your lifestyle, how you choose to live, reveals what you see as being important. And with this in mind, self-control is the process by which we decide what we will say yes to, meaning what we will pursue, and what we will say no to, meaning that which we will not pursue with our time, our energy, our resources, and our focus. And here's the point I want to leave with you from this. The key consideration is this, that the choices that we make are meaningful only to the extent that they're made in light of a particular hoped-for outcome. Without a sense of where we're headed, it's difficult to experience meaning and purpose in our lives. Okay? That's very important to me because, you know, you look at people that have it all but don't have some sense of direction in their life, and, and so they go to this party, and they go to this trip, and they do this, and they do that, and they do the other, and they're bored and restless because there's not an integration to those experiences. They're just having experiences without there being some sense or direction. There's a movie back in 1979 that came out called Being There, Peter Sellers. It's about this, 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 um, this gardener named Chance who's very simple-minded, and he's worked for this guy all his life, and the guy dies. He's a gardener. And he's now out on the street in sophisticated Washington, D.C. And everything he says comes from either a gardening metaphor, which he says very simply, or from watching television all his life. And that's all he really knows. And he ends up connected to some high flyers in Washington who hear his very simpleton statements as being very integrated metaphors. And he becomes very famous. It's quite a, quite a humorous movie. But the point is, is people found meaning in what the, he said but it was meaningless to him. He, he wasn't saying what they were trying to figure out. If you look at people who, like for example, somebody who really watches what they eat, exercises like crazy, lives in Colorado Springs for nine months out of the year, and you think, why are they doing that? They left home and family and all those things to really go into this rigorous training. Well, it makes perfect sense if what they're at is the Olympic Center, and their whole goal is to make an Olympic team. Now, not everyone will win the gold, but to do those behaviors, those behaviors are meaningful because they're leading to a hoped-for outcome. Ansel Adams, famous photographer, you know his name, he taught these courses while he was alive, and probably thousands of people went through Adam, Ansel Adams' zone system workshops. And I promise you, most people leaving those workshops said, I want to be a master photographer. But of those thousands, there's only a handful that made that happen. One the, who is just incredible as a photographer is a guy named John Sexton, who not only is his black and white work exquisite, but he now teaches people 
in the art of making a black and white print. But see, it's interesting, when Sexton talks about his experience, he said, I went to Adam's workshop, and he said, I was so enamored, he said, I changed, it changed everything as to my meaning and purpose in life. And so he's willing to do what was necessary technically in order to become great at what he does. And so when we look at people that are experts, or we look at people that have lived these lives that we would say, that's meaningful, we often see that there is that sense of a direction that they had. Now, none of us are going to be Ansel Adams, and none of us are going to be Mother Teresa. And often we think, so what difference does my life make? And the answer is it makes a tremendous difference. But the key to it is, is what do I see as my purpose? What do I see as my calling? How do I articulate that? You know, what I'd like to do is just walk through in, in, in finishing some questions for reflection. And for those of you who are in small groups, um, maybe these are things you can talk about together. But I just want to ask these and invite you to ask them yourself. Because rather than saying, okay, self-control is gained by doing these three things, it's, it's far more complex than that. And it starts, as far as I'm concerned, with what is it that you're really wanting? And then how do you keep, do what's necessary to say yes and no to things that lead you in that direction? So maybe the first question is, what do I see as my calling at this point in my life? If you have some ideas about that, maybe you just jot that down as we talk. Ted Baldick is another colleague of mine, older guy now, got grandkids, and his grandson Jacob was visiting earlier this year. Jacob is uh, three and a half, four years old, and Jacob said to Ted, he said that he had to go potty. He said, I need to go use the bathroom. And so Ted said, well, it's upstairs. So Jacob goes trundling up the stairs, and Ted kind of walked behind him. And upstairs is a bathroom and three bedrooms. And Jacob walked into one of the bedrooms, and he says, is, is, this, is this the place? And, 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 and Ted said, no, no, Jacob. He said, that's the ba a bedroom. That bathroom's down the hall. So Jacob walked out of that room, trundled down the hall, and walked into the next bedroom. He says, is this, this the place? And Ted said, no, 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 Jacob, it's over there. And so Jacob trundled then next into the bathroom, and about 10 seconds later came out and said to Ted, what I supposed to be doing? <laughs> in his travel, he'd forgotten what the purpose was of being upstairs in the first place. So we've got to ask that question. What's the purpose? Where am I traveling? What does that look like? And it shifts for us at different stages of our lives. But that leads into the question about what are my core values? What is important to me? How do I seek God's guidance? And how do I seek his voice as I seek to live this life out that he's given me? And again, that's why I wanted to show that video, because there's just great questions. You know, do you feel like God is distant? Do you wish God's voice were louder in your life? And is there a connection between the amount of noise in our lives and our inability to hear God? Or if I'm not still, if I don't listen, how is Jesus going to give me rest? And does my schedule, my time, my life look like that of a person who wants to hear God's voice? And what I love about that video is the ending where he's back in front of the television, and in order to drown out those questions, he increases the noise, and that it's so much our temptation. Then the question is, what gets in the way of my being the person I believe I'm called to be, and what am I willing to do about it? You know, you may have thought this talk on self-control is going to be a talk about how to not go on the internet, how to not drink too much, how to not eat too much, how to not... Not doing those things only makes sense if there's a greater purpose, saying no to those things in order to say what? Yes to a greater good. And that's why this question about what's that greater good? What are you called to do? What's it mean to live out a meaningful life? But when you begin to see in your own heart things that get in the way, then those things need to be attended to. 
And so it involves, for me, four or five things. It involves honest reflection. In my heart of hearts, what do I know to be true? Guys, our favorite defense is rationalization, okay? One time, I've, you've heard me say this, one time Claudia and I were driving somewhere and I told her something that I didn't think I was good at and needed to work on. She thought for a minute and she said, yeah, you, so you do need to work on that. And I said, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'd been the one who'd brought it up and now I'm the one defending myself. We're hopeless, okay? And that word rationalize, break it down. What are my rational lies? What are the truths I tell myself and others that aren't true but they help me maintain my equilibrium. There's a way that seems right to a man and the end thereof is death, okay? What are my rational lies? Honest reflection. Second of all, who in my life am I willing to ask, what do you see in me? What do you see in me? Who are you willing to hear from? And how easy it is when somebody complains to us or our spouse says or our kids say or whatever it is to say, yeah, 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 but, because we're not wanting to look honestly at what gets in the way of the people who want to be. Third of all, we've got to have a humble heart. The core of addiction recovery is powerlessness, a recognition that despite my own efforts, and you know this in your own life where you've tried to change some sin pattern or something got in the way, how difficult it is to change, and how by your own efforts, how often it's impossible. And sometimes what we need is to ask the question, what do I need? Do I need treatment for something? Do I need somebody who's wiser who can come alongside? Do I need to confess to somebody about this? Do I need somebody to know what's going on? Do I need accountability? What do I need in order to begin to look to change this pattern? And so often we're unable to really look at what's true because we do not know what to do. And yet we do not need to be alone in that. And then finally, it's recognizing that change in our life is a process of training not trying, okay? If we said right now, guys, cancel your morning, we're all going out for a run, and we're gonna run either a half marathon or a full marathon, there are some of you in this room that could do it. And most of us, it'd be like, despite our best effort, trying as hard as we could, we couldn't get to the finish line. But if we said, guys, six months from now, we're gonna have an amen half marathon, let's start training, and we all get into training, we begin to do something on a daily basis that over time strengthens us so in the future, we'll be able to do something that right now, by our own effort, we cannot do. And so you've got to look at change as a process of training. When we miss the mark, when we fall aside, the question isn't, there I go again, what's the point, why try? It's recognizing that our trying, we will fail. But the key becomes, what's my goal? What am I looking at? What's important to me? How do I get back on track? For those of us who are Christians, guilt is a helpful motivator but we cannot let it turn to shame. Guilt is fine in helping us see where we're off track, but then we confess, we get back connected to community, we get moving again. And the reality is, is what gets in the way of me being that person. Other core questions, what do, value do I place on my current life trajectory? What's solid, what's fluff, okay? Sort it out, what needs to stay, what needs to go? Who are the people that are important in my life? What is my relationship like with each of them? You know, there's an Arlo and Janice cartoon, and I want to read it to you. I can't put it up because of copyright stuff, but here's what it says. Arlo's talking on the phone, and he says, hey, Kurt, it's Arlo. Did you hear the bad news, man? Old Andy Reese died. Yeah, it was a shock to everyone. You know what's weird? I've been thinking about going to see Andy, going out to dinner, having a few drinks, talking things over. Now he's gone. What a shame. Yeah. Well, listen. 
let's you and I get together sometime. Okay, great. See you, buddy. And then the last frame, he's back sitting by himself watching television. Okay. Who in your life do you stay in touch with? Who in your life's important? What's the nature of that relationship, those relationships? Social support is critical, not just for accountability, but for sharing to each other our visions, our direction. And as Proverbs 27, 7 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Any blocks that keep you from connecting more deeply with others that you know are there for you? Pride gets in the way. I don't want to admit I'm that kind of person. Or sometimes we worry about if I tell you these things, what are you going to think? Or sometimes we wonder, is somebody really going to be confidential in what we share? But a lot of times, again for me, a couple guys I meet with, we've met for about 20 years, they love me. Every time I share something in my own life, I feel relieved to share it, and then I worry what they think. You're that same way. And then when we get back together, I lie. Because they say, how's it going? I tell them it's going fine. And I, because again, I just kind of want things to be okay. But we've got a lot of people in our life. And then who are you there for? Who is it that you're allowing your life to be speaking into? And finally the question, what are your future hopes and dreams? What's important to you? What's it look like? Okay, those are questions that I invite you to think through. And this notion of self-control, again, there's an illusion of it. We can't do it. And there's an importance to it. And the importance of how we pattern our life is towards what it is that we're called to do. There's no reason to try to stop some behavior unless you're engaged in something in a whole different direction. Let others come alongside experience Christ's healing touch, I invite you to spend some time alone with God to see what he has to say to you. Let me close in prayer. Father, we know our own brokenness. We know our own fallibility. We know that despite our best efforts, we're never the people that we really want to be. Father, thank you for your son, that in his death and his resurrection, that our future is secure and that we have the power through the Spirit to live this different life than the life we know by our own power. Father, help us to rely on your glorious might and strength for all patience and perseverance and help us to carry each other's burdens and help us to live out this life in a way that we get to the end and we say it was worth it. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you died for us. Thank you for the blessings that you give to us. Be with us as we leave this place and bring us back safely next week. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.